3: and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 317 for the week of May 1st, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight from Florida is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
0: Yep, coming to you live, well, sort of sort of dead and, and direct from <laughs> from Merritt Island, Florida tonight, Sawyer. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great, thanks. And also in Florida, because that's where you can always find him, Mark Ratterman. How are you, Mark?
1: Doing good. And get this, where does Gene pick to stay but Endeavor House?
3: <laughs> that's right, yes. We,
0: uh, I'm a member, proud member of uh, one of the tweet up crews. Uh, the uh, NASA tweet Up occurred also this weekend, and uh, it was a fun group. It really was. I enjoyed them all.
3: And then you have the people who aren't in Florida, but are still absolutely awesome. Welcome as well, Gina Hurley.
2: Hey, how you doing?
3: Good, does thanks. It,
2: does it count if I was there last week? Yeah, it counts. The original launch date?
3: Yep, it counts. But I'm the only That's... one
1: that doesn't count here. Oh, oh absolutely sorry, you always count. <laughs> Thank you see, you. Gina, Gina, you've actually got an advantage. You saw Endeavor when she was ready to go. Gina and I, I, I saw her when she wasn't.
3: Oh, well, she's sorry.
0: <laughs> she's just pouting. She'll be fine.
3: And what do we mean by this?
1: Well, our NASA launch director, Mike Leinbach, has made the decision based on input from the engineering community that we're not able to resolve this situation with the APU heaters in time to make a launch attempt today.
3: The launch of Endeavor was supposed to take place on Friday, April 29, 2011. That didn't happen because of a problem with her APU number one. And uh, can you tell us why uh, inspectors were staring at her aft? <laughs> well, okay, Sawyer,
0: we'll give this a shot. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and go directly to the NASA NASA.gov website on this one. Um, they've identified the likely source of what caused a, uh, a heater uh, to fail, well, not exactly a heater malfunction, but I guess uh, these heaters that that, that uh, were not working were, are on the fuel lines for uh, Endeavour's auxiliary power units, specifically APU number one, uh, which essentially scrubbed the the, uh, the launch. Now, these now these heaters essentially keep the hydrazine fuel on orbit from freezing. Um, now, you don't want your hydrazine fuel freezing because that means that you're your engines are not going to have the fuel they need to, to power up. Now there are two heaters on, on, on in the system. And, you know, theoretically you could have, you know, you could have launched with, without, uh, with, without the one heater, but you know, it, it's kind of like, um, how could I put it? It's like, like leaving for a long trip, knowing your flat tire, you know, knowing your spare tire is flat, you know, it, it's just not something you want to do. Uh, so you want to go ahead and make sure that, uh, that, that your bird that you're flying is completely healthy, and uh, Endeavor unfortunately was not. Um, so this uh, this this box that they they have, which is um, a load, which is called a load control assembly or LCA, is going to be removed. It's a five hour operation, and I believe that was done this afternoon. Now, removing it and putting a new one, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. But you want to go ahead and test the old, the one that you think has failed, to make sure that yeah, that is the culprit, that it did, that it did fail. So what they're going to be doing the next uh, day or so is to go ahead and run that test to make sure that that is indeed the smoking gun that basically brought Endeavor's, uh flight to a halt. Uh, once that is done and confirmed, they'll go ahead and install the new L- LCA. And uh, then have to go ahead and make sure that that LCA is integrated properly with the orbiter. Now, uh, Mark, forgive me if I believe this is correct. The LCA controls more than just the APU. It controls about nine other systems. On, it helps provide heat and power to about nine, nine other systems on the orbiter, correct?
1: Yeah, would you like to run down? I've got notes from the uh, press conference that you were at.
0: Yeah, I do too, but fire away, Mark. It's all yours.
1: Well, you know, if you consider the criticality of things like uh, the APU itself or APUs, uh, environmental control and life support, eh, that could be important. Uh, Electric power distribution for the orbiter, booster electric, hydraulics, water spray boilers, main propulsion systems, orbital maneuvering systems, space shuttle main engine, and orbiter flight controls. So there's a lot that goes on inside this uh, LCA. And pardon me with acronyms because that's so close to something I'm used to to spouting out uh, in my FAA work that I'm probably going to get something wrong at some point. But uh, there's there's nine different systems that go through this unit during the press conference. I may be getting ahead on what you're talking about, Gene, but uh, I believe as Mike Leinbach said that they have dozens and dozens and dozens of functions. To go through and retest when they get the new box in.
0: That's correct, and they want to go ahead and make sure that uh, the new box, once it's once it's placed, also is integrated properly with with the uh, with the bird. And they'll have to run those tests again as well on the new box. So you, you know, you, we're talking about nine real critical systems here. So they're taking their time. They're being methodical, and and hats off to them. Uh, they're sticking by the book even though this is like the next to last flight for the, uh, for the, uh, program. So I think that says, says a lot about, uh, about the program and the people that are managing this thing. They are taking, you know, again, they are launching no shuttle before it's time. And as I, I'm, I'm, I may be misquoting. I may be giving this quote to somebody else, somebody that may or may not have said it. I don't recall. I think it might've been Mike Leinbach that said this, said that, uh, you know, I'd much rather be on the ground wishing I was flying than in the air wishing
3: I was on the ground. That was Bob Cabana, director of the Kennedy Space Center.
0: Thank you, Sawyer. I knew it was somebody. And, you know, uh, again, I have, to, I have to go ahead and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's the mentality. So uh, we'll wait a little bit, make sure that uh, we have a, a healthy uh, Endeavor vehicle, and uh, we'll move forward. Uh, the earliest possible launch day that was being thrown around at the conference was uh, was May 8th but um, again that's just a target and I think uh, Mike Leinbach kind of really considered that to be an ambitious target uh, so my guess and and, and if you want to you know I'll go out all in here and I've been saying this for a little while I think it's going to be May 10th also, there's a lot of things that they're going to have to deconflict. I believe the Soyuz is leaving somewhere in that mix May, as well.
3: That would be May 23rd, which if it launches on... Uh, it can't launch on May 9th because that would be a conflict in terms of two vehicles undocking at the exact same day. Right. This would cause a major problem for just three people.
0: Right. Plus, we can't launch on, on the 6th because... The military has a range. There's an Atlas V sitting on the pad out there.
3: Right, and they uh, need 24 hours before and after to switch over their tracking systems from one vehicle to another.
1: I've worked in electronics and electronic systems, some complex, some simple. And if you get in a hurry, sometimes you can get away with it. It depends on whether you're lucky and whether you put your finger on what the actual problem is. But other times if you have multiple problems and go throw in a spare part in you can end up losing your good spare because there's other problems in the system that are going to take it out as soon as you put power to it so they've got a lot of work to do and uh, i caught a comment in the press conference where they made the statement that when you break a connection and this lca has from the pictures that i saw and and by the way thanks to nasaspaceflight.com and their level two forum for the access that uh, that they have to some of the documentation and um, photos and things that help me to get a picture of what's going on, but uh, there's there's got to be a dozen or more connectors on this LCA. So they say when you break a connection, they have to uh, they essentially invalidate all of the testing that was done on those systems up to that point and have to retest. And that's why when I read off the list of of all of those things, we know they're important, but now they have to verify that everything is good. And the the process of taking the box out apparently involves powering the orbiter down, so they're in a no-power condition, which is safe for for doing electronics changeouts. Put the new box in and then bring it back up. And uh, I remember on Discovery, Gina, when you and I were there back in uh, November of of last year. Uh where uh, I'm guessing it was when we were at one of the uh, briefings where they had a problem and they said, well, it was a a main engine controller and we saw a a current dip that was, you know, a little bit out of spec. And so we wanted to do a switch throw in the cockpit and see how it responded to that. And kind of unexpected things sometimes happen with even even a just an electrical circuit powering up that you wouldn't anticipate you wouldn't think that hey it's it's flipping a switch what could go wrong and yet you've got multiple connections and the integrity of those connections has to be perfect stay perfect and not change and little things can can cause the glitches that they see on their monitoring which i think is phenomenal. That uh, that the mission control folks, the, the, the people on the launch co- consoles can see all of this data. I would love to know how many data channels they're pulling off the orbiter when it's on the pad. There's got to be a phenomenal amount, but, um uh, uh, that's all I can think of to say right now. I, it, it's interesting. I looked at the, um, some of the drawings that were up on, on the website that I mentioned, and it's relatively simple. It's, you've got the, um, the hydrazine piping, and and I heard reference to with hydrazine freezing, the problem is that a, that a plug of frozen fuel can migrate in the pipe. And if it stays at a place that could be sensitive, that's tough, as I believe they said, to model or to determine what the effects of a frozen slug of, of fuel might be, say at a valve, it's a little tough. So they just don't want to do that. They said that they've proven that they can tolerate one freeze-thaw cycle, but beyond that, they don't, uh, I'm going to use the term, this is my own term, they don't certify it as being safe. It becomes an unsafe and undesirable condition. And so that's why the heaters have to work, and apparently they do. They did some troubleshooting where they verified that the heaters are working, the thermostats are probably working but the load control assembly is not taking those inputs and outputs and providing the the proper controls that they would expect. And the whole idea is just to keep that piping at a nominal temperature. And when they fuel the orbiter, when that super cold liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen is going through the, the systems to fuel the external tank, it chills down that aft compartment. So they expect to see that aft compartment get cold, and they expect to see those heaters kick on, and that's when they caught it.
3: Right, when it comes to the heaters, for those that aren't quite sure, it's just like the thermostat in your house. You set it for a certain temperature, and if it drops below that, it kicks on the heat. The same kind of thing, except the one problem was, in this case, it dropped below that temperature, but the heater never kicked on. Maybe the pilot light was out. No, I'm just kidding. That load control assembly is going to be something big. It's almost like if you in your house, if you had a switch box and then a little sub-switch box, that little sub switch box that controls all these different things is causing the problem. So imagine having to take out your entire switch box, check it, and replace it, and then make sure all the connections are together. So in other words, they've got a tough job ahead of them, and that's why we're talking at least May 8th.
0: Hey guys, I've got a question for you. Do you think this? And I, this came up in the conference too, and Mike Lundberg kind of just sort of, you know, uh, you know, just pushed this off. And I'm not criticizing them for it. trust me, but do you think this is a classic case of the more you th- overthink the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain?
3: I think they're doing what it takes to be safe. I think it's just they've done tests on it before. They know it can happen, and the problem is if these if it keeps expanding and contracting, it could burst the pipe, and the last thing you need is leaking hydrazine as you enter the atmosphere which hydrazine, once it enters the atmosphere and encounters it, burns, and I need go no further. So I think that uh, whatever they're doing, however they're taking a look at it, I think they're taking the right approach and the safe approach.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about the engineering aspects of it, though. Uh, the, the shuttle is one of the most complex... Machines ever built period if not the complex m- most complex machine ever built a lot of the And, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and turn to some of the new commercial companies that are coming up They're all trying to keep it simple um, Do you think because of the complexity of the shuttle and now it's going away? Do you think we're going to probably see more you know We're going to see less problems like this as commercial comes online with some of these less sophisticated vehicles.
3: Do I? Yes. Do I think that that will probably be a drop in safety? Yes, because the problem is with the shuttle; it's so complex. But as complex as it is, they know every single system inside now, and, and each one is precisely controlling something. When you generalize it, there's more of a chance of things going wrong. Okay,
1: that's that's a fair assessment. Oh, and uh, just to comment on the the process of troubleshooting, one of the things that I try to do when I've got a problem, uh, rather than just make a knee-jerk reaction, a knee-jerk response, and say, oh, it's that module over there. It's always such and such. Um, You know, the smart process is to go through, to come up with what you think the problems are, look at proving that that's what the problem is, and then look to disprove other things that are possibilities. And that way, you get to be extremely confident as to this is what it is. Um, I also heard in the press conference that the uh, this load control assembly is going out to a malfunction lab. So on Monday, when they pull it out, they're going to be looking to analyze the device and put some, uh, you know, do some troubleshooting inside the box. And so they hope to find, okay, it was such and such a component inside that failed, or maybe it was a, uh, a connection, a solder joint on a circuit card. I don't know how, how the device is made, but, uh, you know, okay, this is the problem, and this fits with what we saw. So they're going to go through all that. While they're putting the new one in and retesting, um, they're going to be looking to prove that absolutely they understand what happened. Very sharp.
3: So we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on this situation, and uh, we'll keep you up to date as to what's going on as we know more. All right, so as we continue along, for STS-134, even though the launch was scrubbed, activity still continued in the days leading up, including a NASA tweet-up and some other press-only events. And by that, we mean that you, Mark, and Gene were part of that press and got some (laughs) amazing looks and views and interviews inside the Kennedy Space Center, and... uh, would love it if you guys could share some of that with us
0: wow where do i begin (laughs) how about day one okay um well day one uh essentially we had uh we had the chance to go ahead and uh first interview a few uh a few astronauts that were available uh for the press to go ahead and talk to and we also had um a uh, opportunity to go ahead and tour several facilities that uh Well, we'll be going ahead and and fulfilling a new role uh, as the commercial companies sort of come online. Uh, Those facilities were the uh, shuttle landing facility, the SLF, uh, which I believe the way uh, we were were told it looked like uh, Sierra Nevada was definitely looking at using the SLF for the Dream Chaser. Uh, which is a, uh, a winged vehicle, sort of a mini-shuttle. It's actually, I believe, um, somebody checked me on this, the, the HL-20, uh, which uh, was being looked at as a mini-lifeboat for the ISS. Unfortunately, I believe that was killed in the early 90s, uh, that particular project. Well, Sierra Nevada kind of sort of picked it up, and, and now they're, they're entering it into the, uh, the commercial fray. So it looks like um, Sierra Nevada is definitely looking at using the SLF. We went over to, well, rather a, 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 what I thought was kind of sort of a forlorn, sad affair there. Um, it was the uh, Pad 39B, which, as most of us know here, if not uh, uh, everyone uh, knows, it's being demolished at this point. NASA is going to a, quote, clean pad configuration on there, which means that uh, for the new commercial companies who want to use it or think they can use it will have to, have to go ahead and bring their own tower, so to speak, or or NASA may be in a uh, point where they will have to, uh, say, develop some sort of one-tower-fits-all type of configuration that's still being being looked at. Also, I will say that the, uh, the project manager for Pad 39B indicated that SpaceX had indeed been over there at Pad 39B, kind of sort of checking out the, uh, the facility there to see if it would you know, accommodate or could it accommodate the, uh, the Falcon Heavy. Now, uh, the problem with that is that SpaceX goes ahead and outfits their vehicles in a horizontal configuration. Most of what comes to Pad 39B comes over there in a vertical configuration. So there's some studies underway right now to try to figure out if indeed that would be compatible with SpaceX's needs. Now, um, I we did also tour the, uh, the Launch Complex 40 where we were invited by SpaceX to tour Launch Complex 40. Uh, uh, and um, uh, indeed, they go ahead and they process things in in a horizontal position, and they bring them out to the pad in a, in a very interesting fashion. Uh, I mean, you could go ahead from vertical to to from horizontal to vertical in, in a matter of hours and be ready to fly. So they're 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 actually doing something smart there. But you know, I, I don't know if Pad 39B is going to be able to accommodate that. But again, they could also accommodate the the Falcon Heavy. From pad, from pad 40 where they are as well and indeed they, they were planning on possibly uh, using pad 40 for the piloted uh, missions of the dragon however they would have to make some modifications to uh, the gantry area uh, obviously you know having the, the elevators and, and uh, the, the escape systems you know probably they were looking at a basket style escape system similar to what they use on the shuttle um, and what was used on Apollo and so on, um, but those were the modifications that they would have to make to their their launch complex. I have some more on on, on our um, on, on our SpaceX visit a little later. Um, but uh, the real, um, well, I don't want to say tearjerker, but for me being a, shut- a big shuttle hugger like I am, um, was to go ahead and visit uh, Orbiter Processing Facility Number Two. Now that is usually Endeavor's turf, but Discovery's sitting in there now. But um, uh, you can't really tell; she's sort of wrapped around in a lot of steel, you know, steel root lattice work and so on. But you can indeed walk under under her or uh, her, her underside there and see the uh, the black uh, uh, tile that's under there. You know, it's still all kind of dirty and marked up. Some areas are, are cracked and pitted and so on. Um, and discovery, as everyone well knows, by now is being prepared to go to the uh, uh, the Smithsonian. Uh, the Smithsonian Institute has said that we want discovery. we don't want her cleaned up. We want her the way she looked as she touched down that day. So uh, they are trying they're darned is to go ahead and make sure they preserve that. Um, a lot of the, 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 you know, the glycols and the hydrazines and all that are, are being offloaded right now. The OMS pods are off. The engines are out. Um, it's, you know, and it's not the same bird she was anymore. She's not going to be. She's being converted from a flight orbiter to a museum piece. Um, so that was basically the tour. While I was doing that, uh, Mark, you were talking to some very interesting people.
1: Oh, while you were out having fun with Discovery and Pad 39B and all? Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't get to do all the cool stuff that Gene did. But (laughs) I did get to talk to a few astronauts. I got to talk to Mr. Michael Barrett, who last flew on Discovery's last flight, STS-133. Got a 10- to 15-minute interview with him. Also was privileged to speak with astronaut Michael Fole and Steve Swanson. And uh, also, this was at the beginning of, of our event. This was actually uh, Wednesday afternoon, the first day that Gene and I were there. Right. And uh, there was a sign-up sheet that uh, was kind of an unknown. You've, you've heard us uh, on Talking Space where we've interviewed astronauts, and and you know how interesting it's going to be. And there was a associate program scientist covering the International Space Station, and I thought, well, how how am I going to do an interview with with somebody in that field? I really don't know what this is all about and how interesting this will be, and the sheet was blank, and I put my name down on the list, and uh, the next morning, which was close to the end of the day when I signed up, the next morning I looked, and I was still the only one on there, and I thought, well, let me do some digging, and maybe if I'm lucky, I'll come up with some good questions, and, and I'll get longer than 10 or 15 minutes. And by the time I did some digging, I pretty well decided that uh, if I got 15, 30, 45 minutes, it wasn't going to be any trouble at all. And so we got four interviews that we're going to put out, as uh, our plan is, and this could change, but our plan is to have sort of a uh, interview-only show where you'll have some comments from us and introductions and such. But uh, basically, we're going to give you a lot of astronaut and NASA science goodness, and I think you'll enjoy it. Indeed, Mark, I'll be.
0: Uh, I hope to go ahead and and uh, post some of uh, that tour as well. Um, to go ahead and, and cut that up into some bite-sized chunks. Uh, the problem is there was a lot of wind. Uh, running around it was a very very windy day that day, so a lot of the outdoor stuff is is out of the question. But the the, the discussion with Stephanie Stilson um, was quite quite enlightening on what you need to do to go ahead and decommission an orbiter. So we'll probably go ahead and and play that in in its entirety.
3: So was that all day one?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it pretty much was.
3: So yeah, now was. that leaves us with day two.
0: Day two, we had an interesting press conference with the winners of the uh, uh, the Commercial Crew Development Program program, uh, uh, the bid uh, no, bid number two or CCDev two. Um, I believe that was uh, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, uh, Sierra Sierra Nevada Corporation with the Dream Chaser, SpaceX obviously with the Dragon, and Boeing with the CST one hundred. Um, uh, it was. It was. Uh, Garrett Reisman was the uh, um, uh, representative over there representing SpaceX, and it was. It was kind of interesting since we kind of sort of struck up a little bit of a rapport since I I lived where where he was he grew up in, in Parsippany, New Jersey, so we kind of sort of chatted a little bit about that. But he said something kind of interesting to me um, during during that press conference. He said that uh, you know we're going to go ahead and make sure that. That the dragon is a safe vehicle, you know, he said. That that's part of my job, um, because my buddies are going to be flying on this thing, and I want to make sure that they are perfectly and totally safe. And um, he he was he seemed to be very very passionate about that. So if anybody's worried about safety, I think uh, um, that safety part of it is in is in very good hands with uh, Mr. Reisman. Um the one thing that I came out of the meeting, and, and I'm, I'm really, really scratching my head, is 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 blue or is the Blue Origin Company. Uh, we were trying to go – or we were all – the press was all trying to go ahead and pin them down to say, uh, do you have at least a, a, a target date at as to where you want to go ahead and launch or when you're going to go ahead and launch a prototype? And the response from the representative there, whose name escapes me, I'll have to go through my notes and look that up, was, quote, we do not go ahead and specify launch dates. Okay, Um, let me get this straight. You are going ahead and you are taking $82 million of the taxpayers uh, from a taxpayer. Uh, we are indeed investing good hard money in into your program, but yet you're not going to tell us exactly when you're going to deliver product. Hmm. Okay, that's fine. Why? And you know they were very very tight-lipped. The other thing too was before, just the day that the announcement was made, I believe. Uh, A reporter challenged the uh, Blue Origin representative and saying, "Well, you know, you've been very, very tight-lipped about uh, what you're building and what you're designing. We've never ever seen what you're designing and what you're building over there. Could you kindly go ahead and tell us exactly what you're building?" The representative refused to tell him. The reporter pushed and said, "Well, you know, again, the U.S. taxpayer is investing money, and we believe that you know we have a right to go ahead and know what, what you're what you're building." A day later, an artist rendition of the capsule that the uh, of the Shepard capsule that Blue Origin is supposedly designing was was released. So, you know, you, you really have to go ahead and, and, and pull teeth from some of these folks. I mean, I realize what they're designing. They're all worried about about the thing being proprietary and all this. And that's fine. We understand that. That's OK. But an artist rendition. Isn't going to go ahead and and you know sell about, you know just just turn the whole project over to your competitor. So you know hey guys you're going to have to go ahead and and pass along information especially with the American people now you know having some skin in the game. Just a message to all to all of the CC Dev winners. Um, and I'm hoping information is is, is forthwith. Um, the the, uh, the folks from Sierra Nevada, they didn't have a presentation because I think the dog ate their presentation or something happened to the PowerPoint slides. So the representative basically drew a cute little drawing of what the um, what the dream chaser looked like. And it would sort of kind of looked like my, my, my cousin, Zachary, my cousin, my, uh, my nephew, Zachary, drew it. But uh, he was very, very forthcoming with, with, with some information uh, for us. And, you know, I will go ahead and salute uh, Sierra Nevada for at least, you know, giving this a shot. And, um, SpaceX, again, they were all right with information, but they, they, I think they still have a long way to go with, uh, with, with getting, getting, um, you know, data out to, uh, to us. Now I realize again, there's dangers of of proprietary information leaking, but, you know, you, you just have to measure that. Um, I'll go over. I'm going to run back over again to the the tour that we took of the SpaceX facility, and I've, I've, i I kind of talked about this with some folks in the in the media center too. Um, that went on the tour. We were given access to the uh, the hangar, basically where where the, uh, the where the vehicle was being processed. And sure enough, when you walk in, you're presented with a first stage of a Falcon 9 with its engines sort of sticking out there. Now we are told that in order to if we are going to take photographs of the booster and, and the engine and the engine configuration, we have to go ahead and stand right behind this X point, which is it's marked on the factory floor with a green X. We cannot go beyond that line, which I understand because of you know, safety reasons. But if we we're going to go ahead and take, and take pictures of the engines, we can't take close-up pictures of the engines. And we have to take up and take pictures of the engines at a certain angle. We can't take them from behind, from where the nozzles are. Um, the reason given is because of an ITAR violation. Uh, now, it, it, I, I, I deal with ITAR on, on, on my other job uh, on a daily basis. And ITAR is essentially a a regulation that says you cannot go ahead and give what could be sensitive technology to a potential entity, whether it be a country or whatever, uh, that might use it to do harm to the United States. Um, Guys, uh, if I'm taking a picture of, of, of an engine compartment I can go over to, um, you know, the VAB or the, one of the orbiter processing facilities and, and take a look at Atlantis's main engines and take, you know, pictures of, of the engines at any angle I want, and it's not an ITAR violation, supposedly. But yet, I can't take pictures of your engines and you're telling me it's an ITAR violation. You know, guys, in all honesty, I didn't buy that. If they told me that this is a proprietary design, we really don't want you taking pictures of it because it may tip off competitors of what we're doing. You know, that's fine. I understand that as a member of the, of the press and I fully understand that I wouldn't even dream of, dream of taking a picture of the darn thing. But you know, guys, be straight up with us. That's all I'm saying. I, I thought the the item invoking ITAR in this this instance, I thought was a load of hooey in plain English. Um, and it's it's just the thought. The same thing too. We couldn't take photographs of inside the core of the booster because again, that's an ITAR violation, huh? I could go ahead across into the vehicle assembly building and take a picture of the core of a, of, a, of a solid rocket motor, and I'm, you know, wouldn't that be analogous to doing that? Now, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to get letters, and that's okay, but, um, you know, again, I, I don't think folks are being straight up. If, if you're saying, again, this is proprietary technology, we don't want our, we don't want competitors to see this, that's okay. I understand that totally. But again, do not invoke ITAR and, and hide behind the ITAR regulations. Just say it's proprietary, and I'll get it. That's all. Um, I'm off my soapbox now. So we went out, we went ahead and and, uh, and and attended that that particular press conference. I believe Mark, there was a. I'm trying to recall uh, day two completely. We had another um, a conference that day. I, I believe. I think that was the uh, the AMS conference, correct?
1: Well there was AMS and uh actually there was two more that uh that I thought were pretty cool. I was in and out of the first one, the spacesuit demo.
0: Yeah, oh yes, indeed. I have to go ahead and um say that the, the two, uh, there were two very, very knowledgeable young ladies going ahead talking about that spacesuit demo. Mark, why don't you go ahead and take it, because the, the, these two folks were really, really, really fantastic when they went ahead and demonstrated the equipment.
1: Well, this is one of the advantages of having uh, two of us on site. It was divide and conquer, and yeah, unfortunately, I was in and out of the room. And the direction that they were facing was away from where I was when I was in there. So I really heard nothing. But I saw spacesuit gloves. I saw spacesuit boots. I saw an upper section to an EVA suit, a, a torso legs, and it looked like all the right stuff. They had a undergarment. You could see the, uh, the, the tubes for the, for the cooling, uh, I guess, water that, that flow through there to help you keep your temperature happy. Um, but the actual content of it, I kind of missed. But uh, you, you found a contact that we can talk to in the future, I believe, too. That's
0: correct. Um, a uh, Mal- Mallory Jennings who is over there going ahead and uh, uh, demonstrating the suit, and uh, I also have. Uh, that all recorded as well and we will be presenting that mark on our uh, little wrap-up on our little uh, presentation show with uh, the astronaut and interviews and so on so I'm I'm really looking forward to sharing that
1: and you had one other uh, event that that you were at when I was uh, was doing something I was probably sitting around drinking coffee telling jokes carrying on you went to the uh, storm Was it demo? Yes.
0: This is the the, what Storm is. What Storm really is, and I've got my little cheat sheet here. Um, Storm is a a, an experiment that's actually flying on Endeavour. It is essentially the the radar system that the uh, Lockheed Martin's Orion, or I understand they're going to be dumping that name in favor of something else quite soon. Uh, But for now, I'm just going to call it Orion. STORM stands for Sensor Test for Orion Relative Navigation Risk Mitigation Development Test Objective. Now, you know why they're just simply calling it STORM. Um, This will be flown on STS-134. It's a a visual navigation system that's going to be used for both crewed and uncrewed docking and navigation in in the future Orion spacecraft. Now the test is going to demonstrate and characterize the flight. I'm sorry, the, the flight capabilities of the advanced relative navigation sensor technology that uh, has been developed. Um, now all three NASA human spaceflight programs are supporting this, um, and it's required for future safety and reliable reliability. So um, what, what's going to happen is, um, I believe. Two approaches are going to be done. One, before um, Endeavour docks with the ISS, and again as Endeavour is leaving the ISS, what Endeavour is going to do is sort of try to mimic the best it can uh, an Orion approach uh, to the ISS, and use Storm, use the Storm system to go ahead and and uh, and try to go ahead and approach that as if it were an Orion spacecraft. And then it will double back and perform a, a usual docking like the shuttle does. And on when the shuttle undocks, it's going to first do the usual fly around that it that it usually does. It's going to move away and then reapproach the station. But again, using the storm system, sort of mimic, trying to mimic the Orion pattern that it would follow as it, docked to, as it docks to the International Space Station. Now, I asked some of the folks over at uh, uh, doing the demonstration. Uh, the shuttle, as you know, is like 122 feet long, and, and it's, a, it's a huge beast as compared to, to what the Orion is. Um, the Orion is a smaller, more nimbler spacecraft. So I, I kind of asked, you know, is are you going to get the right data that you really, really are looking for with you know with a shuttle going ahead and, and trying to do this? And they said, well, we're not going to get the exact numbers. We're we we're, we're not going to go ahead and, and and mimic an Orion. There's just no way we're going to be able to do it do it with the shuttle. It's not going to be exact, but it's going to be in the ballpark. So they're going to get their data and they'll see if the systems work. And um, it's the first step to trying to uh, to see if the Orion is a is a capable vehicle. So um, it was a it was a very very intriguing discussion. We're going to have a little bit more on uh, Storm during the uh, uh, the STS-134 mission. So uh, so stay tuned.
2: So
3: it sounds like an exciting day too. Concluded there. And now, if I'm getting my day straight, next should be day three, and that would be launch day, am I right?
0: Yep, that was launch day, and um, Mark, uh, I think we, we just played uh, Rent and Mules that day, so to speak. We were just going ahead and setting up our gear for, the, uh, for what would have been the, uh, the live broadcast, correct?
1: And the crowds were big. Uh, It's impressive to see how jammed that press site got with satellite trucks and photographers and the multiple buses that they brought in to take uh, people that signed up for the crew walkout over to the crew quarters to see them board the Astrovan. Um, It was really impressive, and and there I was with a couple of bins of goodies to – Get us hooked up online and uh, do a call with Astronomy FM, and we were ready. We checked out, and we actually did something we'll talk about in a few minutes. But, yeah, I was quite impressed. I, I, I didn't seem like it was as big uh, in November when I was there for the, just the uh, 133 launch attempts for Discovery that were at that time.
0: Yeah, I think the Orlando, not the Orlando Sentinel, but Florida Today, if I recall, the headline said that 750,000 people were expected to uh, to view the launch uh, that day. Um, And you could really, really tell that there was a lot of electricity in the media media center. Of course, it was also very, very difficult to go ahead and find a seat. (laughs) But we managed to do it. Um, And uh, uh, but uh, once we kind of. Uh, got ourselves together and and did what we needed to do. To sort of, you know, understand what was going on, get the latest report, get the latest weather report, make sure things were all copacetic. Mark and I set out to go ahead and set up our our little tent and our home away from home. Right.
1: Mhm. Yes, sir.
0: And uh, it all worked. I was amazed. And I have Mark. I have to say, hats off to you. Um, I just flat out do not have that, that, that engineer type talent. And, uh, I'm going to call you Scotty from now on because you, uh, you, you know, pulled out another, you pulled out down a miracle and, uh, for some reason or other, it all worked. <laughs> one thing we didn't mention on, uh, launch day minus one, Mark, you put up with me because I had never seen this before. Um, and, and you're, you're quite the gentleman for, for doing that. We had an opportunity to go ahead and see the uh, remote service structure retract on Endeavor. And unfortunately, that was delayed uh, a little while due to some very, very wild weather that was running around the, uh, the area. I mean, um, we, had, we were kind of stuck in a, in, a, uh, in a bus there for a little while because they, they said there was a, a class two lightning alert and they didn't want anybody outside. So you had to be either in a in bus or inside somewhere. And the bus was closer, so we Mark and myself we jumped on there, and um, well, uh, we, we stuck it out. And uh, I, I saw a green. I saw green clouds for the first time, and I thought that can't be good. They were they were running around the vehicle assembly building. It was some very. It was a very interesting show. We had a lot of wind, uh, but it did the work against us if we were going to go ahead and uh, see the uh, the RSS retract. I believe, Mark, it was about 11:45 by the time uh, uh, it was 11:45 in the evening. By the time we got out there,
1: yeah, they uh, they mentioned that they might be starting it at 11:45, and I think it was shortly after that 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 it actually started. And I'm curious, Gina, you saw the uh, RSS retract for the November 133 attempts, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, I was out there. They brought us out there, and. As soon as we basically got unloaded from the buses, within five minutes, they had us back on because there was lightning warnings. So there's some heat lightning in the area, but nothing too significant. Drove us all the way back to the press site, and in, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12, 15 minutes, they turned the buses around and we went back out there. So, yeah, it was a great experience. I mean, unfortunately, by the time we got back out there, um it was basically pitch black. So, um, they put lights on the stack and then eventually when they had the RSS almost all the way open, they put the Xenon's, uh, cannons on the shuttle, which was, is always impressive. Yeah. But, um, yeah, oh, it's quite something to see. It's like, uh, you know, it's a reveal of any other kind, but it's, uh, it's just impressive. I mean, you really get a sense of the size and the power being that close to the stack. Especially, I guess, at night and seeing it all lit up, it is impressive.
3: I guess I'm going to have to do that for 135,
0: then, huh? Yes, or you're going to have to. Um, the it is it, it's quite a sight to see. You're about 100 feet away um, from the uh, uh, from the gate that uh, leads up to uh, the pad the pad itself, and uh, to see that 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 stack bathed in in, in the xenon light in person. Is just, uh, I mean, it, it gives you goosebumps in plain English. Now, I, I did throw a, if uh, folks are so inclined, I did uh, post at least one or two, one or two photographs of that, and I think one of them may be up on the website. I was right just now, about to so. mention
3: that there are about four of them actually, along with some other pictures from the adventures that you mentioned on our website, talkingspaceonline.com. Just click on the link on the left sidebar that says photo album. And then STS-134 photos, and they're all there. Thanks, Sawyer. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Now, when it came down to the actual launch and the scrub of it, I know that uh, Gina and myself found out before you guys did. But, uh, Mark, I noticed that you noted something very interesting about the Astrovan, right?
1: (laughs) You know, this is is the embarrassing part of uh, Gene calling me Scotty. Okay, so I've got the tent set out there where we've got a point, uh, excuse me, a place that, that NASA said would uh, be ours. And I've got electric, and i got the DSL and the voice line all set up. And what I didn't have, and it, man, it would have been nice, I, I didn't have the uh, audio feed from the NASA Mission Control audio loop. I didn't have that out there yet. And I might not have gotten it in time for launch, as as much time as things took. But, uh, yeah, I actually found out from a text message from my wife, who was across the Indian River in Titusville, that there was a scrub. And then one of the TweetUp folks went by and said, yeah, there was a scrub. In fact, we saw the Astrovan. And, uh, Sawyer, were you watching video at that point? Yes, I was. Tell us about it. Uh, well, the, from what I could tell, the Astrovan, uh,
3: from what I've heard and what I've seen, it was driving and stopped and pulled into the parking lot of vehicle assembly building in the launch control center area. And then the next thing you know, they're turning around, and they're heading back to the crew quarters, and I'm going, what? Either they stopped and dropped somebody off, A, B, someone forgot to use the bathroom before they left. Or see, they're scrubbing this thing right here and now. Unfortunately, it was the latter.
1: <laughs> that had to be a, a sinking feeling to actually see that. I I heard about it after the fact, and when I knew what was happening, or at least a little bit about it. But to just see it, it's like, huh? <laughs> right, you see it leave, the helicopters are still flying
3: over, and it just stops. pulls into a parking lot. It's like you're supposed to. No, that's a parking lot. The launch pad is that way, straight ahead. Keep driving. Just follow the path. You can't miss it. It's the big giant orange tank.
1: Well, the uh, the rest of the story is that uh, at the at the briefing that the managers had for us after the scrub, we found out why it went that way. Uh, they were trying to give the team that was looking at their data on what they saw with those APU heaters. They were trying to give their team a little bit more time to go through it again. The crew was already suited up, you know, that process had already started and was probably close to completion along with the crew walkout, but they wanted to use that time to uh, let their team go through the information and make sure that they hadn't missed anything before they call the scrub. And the reason that they stopped at the VAB was that's outside the danger zone of the fully fueled shuttle stack. And so that's why they went to that point and not beyond it. They could well have gone out to the pad and and looked at uh, Endeavor and, and then left, but for safety's sake, they stopped them at the VAB for a few minutes and said, okay, we're done.
3: Right. I know that's that they said that they didn't intentionally do it that way, but that's just when they happened to call the scrub, that's just where it happened to be, and... Uh, Launch director Mike Leinbach even spoke to them, actually, because I know that he's able to be in constant communications with them.
0: Yeah, what he did is just simply called the Astrovan and said – in fact, he said that during the the uh, post-scrub press conference. He actually called the Astrovan and said, guys, it just ain't happening. And uh, yeah, you want. And Mark is absolutely correct. Uh, they uh, they turned around basically at the point at the point where they would have been in, if they went on further, they would have been in in the quote danger zone close quote. So wise move.
3: What you don't want to be near five hundred thousand gallons of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen? Uh, would you? <laughs> Needlessly?
1: <laughs> yeah, no comment needed. <laughs> uh huh. As long as they play nice together, I don't mind. But, uh, yeah, there's always the potential. And that's why you hear the astronauts talk about the fact that when they get out to the orbiter on launch day, everything is it's the same, but everything is different. You feel like you're walking up to a, uh, a, a living, you know, beast.
3: Yeah, because shuttles, they look so calm and peaceful, but until you see them venting the vapors and... As the astronauts have described it, hearing it creak and moan, it's a totally different story. It comes alive.
1: Well, they'll get to do that. It just won't be where, of course, wasn't at this point, April 29th. Right.
3: And on April 29th, later that day, uh, Talking Space ended up meeting and uh, having a little chat live on Astronomy FM, Talking Space's first ever live broadcast.
0: Yeah, I could do that every day. Um, that was a heck of a lot of fun, and I, I have to go ahead and thank the folks over at Astronomy FM for giving us the platform for a little while and trusting us enough with uh, with their uh, uh, their airwaves, so to speak, for a little bit. So, uh, again, my, uh, my heartfelt thanks to them.
3: Same, and they shouldn't be so trusting of us because whenever launch is happening again, Talking Space will, in fact, be there. So stay tuned to Talking Space's website, and... Uh, Again, TalkingSpaceOnline.com And we'll keep you up to date As well as Astronomy FM's website Which is Astronomy.fm Now I know that when it came time to actually launching You guys didn't get to see it But there were some special people that were there That also didn't get to see it Can you help us out on uh, who those people were? I will say as part of
0: the NASA tweet-up They had two uh, celebs in there That was Seth Green and uh, LeVar Burton of, uh, of Star Trek um, they were both there to, to as men believe it or not as members of the tweet up um, I also asked some of the, the folks here in, in endeavor house as it's as it's nicknamed um, what was their reaction to the scrub and the thing is they were a little disappointed but they seem to understand that this is spaceflight and in in spaceflight these things kind of sort of happen so um, there's there was a lot of uh, you know, sad, but you know, mature thinking along those lines. so um, hats off to those folks. Mark, you also have some folks that uh, were over there, correct?
1: Uh, yes, I'm looking from a list that uh, we picked up at the news center, and uh, as as you would expect, the number one VIP guest for the launch was the president and the first family. Uh, but I've got a four page list single-spaced, I guess you'd call it, of uh, government uh, VIPs, people from industry, congressional guests, international dignitaries, uh, European Space Agency, the Italian Space Agency, AMS, the Canadian Space Agency, uh, Russia, Ukraine, Bermuda, and even Mexico. So uh, that's the VIPs, plus Gene was there, so... uh, it, it was a, a it was a special day for a uh, not the launch at least in terms of who was there. Oh, dare I say this? Do I get on my soapbox yet, or, or am I on a uh, a chill pill? No, uh, go ahead. nope. The steps are leading up to it for you, so have fun. Go ahead. Okay, y- you know, you've you've many people have heard. Uh, many of the NASA press conferences where they're pre-launch and post-launch and, and all of this stuff. And I remember, I vividly remember, that uh, when Gene and I first met face-to-face, it was for the STS-129 launch tweet-up in November of 2009. Right. And after Atlantis launched... We went back into the TweetUp tent, and we were there at the press site, and they had the monitors inside the tweet Up tent, and we were seeing the feed from uh, from Mission Control, of course, prior to launch and f- during launch, and then they went to the um, the, the one-hour post-launch press conference. And after a few minutes, uh, someone that was up at the microphone said, uh, does anybody want to watch this anymore? And And nobody raised their hand, and so they shut the monitors off. And it's because some of the questions were like, it was hard to figure where some of the media was coming from because the things <laughs> that the things that we found were the most interesting and the most exciting, it seemed like they were getting missed by the press. And so I, I think here at, on our show, we pride ourselves in finding the things that really interest us and putting a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of extra into it to tell our listeners about it. So what am I complaining about? But the uh, post-Scrub News Conference, uh, not even 10 minutes into it, was questions about Congresswoman Giffords and what were her plans? Was the family's uh, staying? Would she be staying at KSC or returning home? And, and what was the details there? And I'm sorry, that, that bugs me. Uh, the attention of the press... Not not necessarily by any means anywhere as close to many of the press that we were around. It's just a few people. The question kept coming up: Where's the president going to see the launch from? Who cares? He's the president. He can see it from anywhere he wants to, and it shouldn't be anybody's business until afterwards. Because you gotta be you gotta have some interest in national security. You gotta keep the. The leader of our country safe at all times. And Congresswoman Giffords certainly deserves the privacy and the respect and the honor that she's due for her service to the country and also for what she has gone through. Never, you know, n- not even to consider that. But uh, so I'm off my soapbox. I'm, I'm happy again. And, uh, you know, I'm glad she made the trip. I'm glad she was well enough to make the trip. And uh, it's a shame that we didn't get more captivating, interesting questions about Endeavor at the various events that we were at where that invariably seemed to come up.
0: Hey, Mark, just as an aside, if you recall, if you recall um, we were over at the media center, and I, I, I know the person that came up to us and asked us this question. I'm not even going to mention their name or their affiliation, but this individual asked um, – as we got out of the the pre-launch countdown um, uh, uh, press conference, um, if uh, Ms. Giffords was going to be available for interviews and when. Um, I I kindly said no. Um, She's being treated as uh, a member of of the crew family and uh, as such would probably not be available for comment and, and justifiably so.
1: So. Yeah, I think the crew family deserves their privacy. But uh, Sawyer, let's tell our story from uh, February of 2010. Yep, that was pretty cool. We were at a restaurant. You and I and oh, a dozen other people. We met, uh, you know, to to have dinner, and we're at one of the popular restaurants there in uh, Titusville, I think it was. Anyway, so there was a, a crew family. That uh, had a large part of the restaurant uh, set aside for them, and to, you know, to enjoy a, a meal and getting together. And uh, Sawyer got to meet uh, the the pilot, some of the uh, family of the pilot of STS. I forget which which flight was. It, it was Endeavor, 130. right? One thirty. Yeah, it was STS one thirty.
3: Which I would never have done if it wasn't for you, because I was like, I don't want to disrupt them. They're eating dinner, etc. But you said, "Come on, I'll go with you." We went, and sure enough, I met them and ended up meeting her and the mother of the astronaut and got a bunch of things from her, and she said we'd be in touch, but then we lost track of each other, and you know what actually helped her find, reconnect us? One of our listeners, listened to the podcast, heard me tell the original story about meeting her. Once they heard that story, they said, I found your person, and we reconnected, and we've been friends ever since.
1: I think that is cool because just like the astronauts, their families are real folks. They are, yeah, I thought it was, I was really impressed. The first person I talked to when I was hoping to meet somebody that, that, that would in turn be somebody you could talk to about the crew and, you know, your the excitement that you had for Endeavour and the launch coming up and all this was somebody else. And they said, well, we've got to leave, but uh, the, the the pilot's mother is right over there. And, you know, that's that's where it started. And I remember they talked to you for, oh, 15 minutes. You guys got photos of each other and everything.
3: Yeah. If only they didn't have to keep go. If only they didn't have to actually go to go on top of the uh, where they were going to watch the launch. We would have kept going. But we do that now anyway through Facebook.
1: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Fun little story. (laughs) Great people. Great people.
3: Oh, yeah, we still communicate with them every single day. And if you're listening, you guys are awesome. All right. So with that, I believe that wraps up our launch, our scrub coverage of STS-134 on our scrub cast here. Stay tuned for an exciting STS-134 interview and clips show, which will be coming up in the near future, and some more interviews on our regular Talking Space shows also coming up. So i'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you for coming gene McCulka
0: Sawyer. Um, it has been one heck of a journey here um, it is i know we've we've gone without you know this has been a sort of a sleep deprivation experiment we've gone you know we've mark and i we've worked we've walked a, worked a lot of long hours, missed a lot of lunches and dinners. As I said, didn't get a lot of rest or anything like that, but gosh darn it, the past few days I wouldn't have traded for anything, um, and I hope to do this more. It has been one heck of an experience. Before we go, there's a couple, there's a bunch of folks I want to thank. First, everybody on the NASA side and in the media center, um, Allard, Allard Butel and uh, Mike Curry, the, uh, the two uh, PAOs that I had some experience with. You guys are, are, are champs. Um, uh, you guys made sure that we had everything we needed, and I, I thank thank you guys very very much. Um, there was one individual though I really have to go ahead and thank. Her name is Maggie Persinger. She works in the media center. She's responsible for getting uh, recordings of uh, of any of the conferences over to us. Uh, not only did she go ahead and make sure that we got what we needed as far as that's concerned. Um, she actually, well, in some way, shape or form, uh, got dinner, which, would, well, dinner meaning cookies. It's been a tradition of hers to always have some, a plate of cookies over at the media center, and a lot of times that became lunch and dinner. So, again, uh, Miss Person, dear, if you're listening, and uh, thanks a whole bunch. Um, Anyway, some a few other folks again giants in the industry, and and again it was a marvelous experience. I hope to again do this a lot more. So, um, again, you guys on the NASA press side, you're great. You're great folks, and uh, thanks a lot.
1: Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Glad to be here. It's been a great week. We got more ahead. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking uh, about launch. Hopefully, it'll be soon enough that we won't have a chance to discuss. All of the fixes and retesting, its uh, it's been interesting, and we got a great mission ahead.
3: And thank you as well, Gina Herlihy.
2: Oh, thank you, Sawyer. It's been great to be here.
3: And before we go, I'd like to give a couple of special thank yous as well. A special thank you to Michael Forrester and all the great folks over at Astronomy FM for providing us with the live launch coverage, not only for the first scrub, but for all future live launch coverages. And I'd also like to thank Todd, Cecilio, and Russ Dale for the updated opening of the show and also for their special STS 134 launch intro. And I'd like to thank you, of course, for joining us and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.